Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined, as always, by the resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Well, um, I played golf yesterday. Nice. The first time in a while. So probably uh, not for great experience score-wise. Uh, no, I only shot two over. I shot a oh, okay. uh, well 74. Well done, well done. Um, but uh, it's hot. It was 96 yesterday. Yeah. Heat index well into 100. So I think it's going to take me about a week to recover. One, because it's been a while since I've played. And all the torque on your body normally takes me a couple days when I'm not, when it's been a while. Yeah. Um. But playing in a hundred degree weather also just zaps you. Uh, so one of the negatives about Texas, it's it's too hot right now. It's about the same here. It's either raining torrentially or it's uh, unbelievably hot. Um, but I was able to. Let's see, my family is actually traveling right now, so I am home alone, which means I've played. In the last few days, taking Sunday off because I couldn't because I couldn't go, or I would have um, four or five rounds of disc golf in the last four days. So it's been great. The recovery time's a little quicker uh, with all of that. It's still a good amount of torque and stuff, but less so. Well, see, I miss. I used to play at least once or twice a week, if not more. So. Yeah. I could get around in and feel fine. Like I, that, that would be like my off day from the gym. But then when you when you go to playing once a month, and your body's not used to moving that way, right? Um, so I'm again plus the the heat. It's always tough playing. But it's nice anything to be out. outdoors. Nice to during be the out, summer though, again, in the south. Finally, the wind. Uh, give me rain. Give me rain, give me heat. No more wind. Fair. Yeah, I just, man. Man, man, man. Well, the weather, no matter what it is, cannot stop us from doing this podcast, at least not right now, unless it's, that's not it a challenge. It has in the past. That is not a I challenge. I would like to point out. <laughs> Multiple times. So you're supposed to, this is, there's a give and take to all of this. And then <laughs> just, just blew right through it. Well, it's not stopping us today, so. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get this episode recorded, continue our, uh, train on new creation here specifically with Paul, uh, and, uh, one of three major tests texts that we're going to focus on. Uh, the last episode we focused in on first Corinthians 15, which dealt a lot with the, uh, with the resurrection, the consequences of, or the implications of no resurrection and how that's not actually how it works. And then even, what that will look like. And we unpack some of his language uh, alongside his worldview and all of that. Two episodes ago was just Paul's, how he writes things, how he thought and all of that. Uh, a, I want to say that we called it a brief, uh, a brief introduction to Pauline theology or something like that. Uh, and it was a little over an hour, but the title is still apropos, even at an hour plus, because there's a lot to be said about Paul in his Go theology. Go by N.T. Wright's like thousand-page book on 
I oh. have it sitting and, <laughs> right in front of uh, me on the shelf, and it is a large book. <laughs> you'll appreciate our brief. Yeah, you're welcome. Introduction to Pauline theology. Today we're jumping into Romans eight uh, with new creation and Paul. I think uh, a very good discussion, a passage that I enjoy. That um, I think for a lot of people, at least this was the case for me for a very long time, kind of felt weirdly out of place in the whole section of what's going on here. Romans chapter eight was the text that I would talk about. Oh, nothing can separate us from you know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, we know that God works in bad things to bring about good things. Okay? But then the other stuff was, I don't hear people talk about this, and I'm not sure what to do about it personally. Uh, so hopefully a, an illuminating discussion for all people involved. At the very least, I hope it brings up questions. And we'd love to hear those questions from you or uh, comments about previous episodes, thoughts about future episodes. Uh, you can get a hold of Spencer and I uh, at our Facebook page for Thinking Theologically. Personally, on our Facebook pages as well, if we are friends with you and all of that stuff. Uh, you can also get a hold of Spencer on Twitter. Uh, and, of course, you can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. And I'd like to add, uh, if you have not visited thinkingtheologically.org yet, you're missing out on additional content uh, than just these podcasts. First of all, you're missing out on our show notes where you can actually just go through and get a pretty quick run through of what the episode is all about. So at the very least, you can kind of uh, see and maybe prep yourself if you don't have time to listen to the full thing. Uh, but you're also missing out on additional stuff that we are writing and also providing that we read our own articles. Uh, and I say we, I have not written anything yet, but I'm mostly done with something. We're getting close. So. I will have something there too as well uh, here pretty soon, I hope. So it uh, feels, it's difficult. It's like getting back into golf, getting back into writing for me. Haven't worked those muscles in a long time uh, in that way, outside of little bulletin articles. Uh, so I think it'll be good. It just takes me a little longer uh, than it used to uh, to get those things uh, written down. So, uh, But make sure you go check out thinkingtheologically.org for all of that stuff, all of our show notes, everything uh, that we do here on the show. With all of that said, let's jump into Romans 8 and talk about new creation and Paul in this uh, very interesting section uh, that he writes here. Before we get into the specific passage uh, Spencer, why don't you walk us through the outline of, of Romans? Uh, I, there's a certain lens that you're going to uh, view this through. And so, you know, walk us through all of that and uh, how the section that we'll spend more time with ultimately fits into the big picture of Romans here. Yeah. So, like with everything that we've done, if you haven't noticed, we find it very important to try to understand the context of yes. historical context, cultural context, literary context. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on. That's why we began looking at Paul's overall theology before we dived in. And I think we need to do the same thing in Romans to understand what Paul is doing and saying in Romans 8. We have to understand what got him to Romans 8 because he said a lot up to this point that has got him to say what he says in, in Romans 8, which... I just kind of want to add, when we're talking about new creation, Romans 8 may be, may be the most important passage. Like you said, that there's yeah. this section in there that talks about really the, the renewal and even in the language, the resurrection of 
creation itself as Paul's speaking about salvation, which again is kind of weird to a lot of readers. Uh, one, because you don't see a discussion like that uh, in very many other places in the New Testament, at least not in the way that Paul presents it, as right, I hope we've right. shown you do see it, but not quite in the same way that Paul's presenting it. Also to a lot of readers, I think it appears as odd or misplaced. It just kind of like yeah. appears, and so we don't really know what to do with it. And so a lot of the times we just kind of skip over it and we don't do anything with it. And kind of what we're going to be arguing is, first off, I think it makes perfect sense in light of understanding this new creation theme that's found in all of Scripture. But I think if, if we understand Romans correctly— it makes sense where it shows up and why Paul says it at this point. And so kind of beginning with an outline of Romans, this might be an outline. And I would actually say it probably is an outline that you've never heard before, at least not quite in this way, but I would argue it, it makes the most sense of Romans. Uh, So Romans begins chapter one, verses one through 17 with Paul's introduction, Paul's greeting, like Paul begins all of his letters, um, introducing himself, uh, introducing some of the themes and things that he's going to fill out throughout the letter. Uh, And then he starts really in chapter one and verse 18 through chapter five and verse 11, which is generally by pretty much anybody viewed as the first major section of Romans. But what I would argue what Paul is doing there is he is dealing with sin on an individual level. So what I will call little s sin, uh, the sins that you and I commit when we, a lot of times we think of sin as missing the mark. So when you or I as individuals miss the mark, when we do something or think something or uh, act in a way that's contrary to God's desires, contrary to how God created us. Uh, the obvious thing is you look at the beginning in 1 and verse 18, and Paul talks about idolatry, giving up the worship of the creator to worship the created. He talks about homosexuality. He talks about all these things on an individual level. And in the section, he also talks about some of the salvation that you and I as individuals find in Jesus from our sins. But then that moves Paul to his second major section, which begins in verse 12 of chapter 5, where Paul starts talking about Jesus is the new Adam, which is a theme that we've talked about a couple times already. And that moves him through the end of chapter 8. And I would argue that in the second major section, where the text that we're going to be looking at uh, in this episode is found— chapter 5 through chapter 8, Paul is dealing with sin on a cosmic level, what I'll call big S, capital S, sin. Sin that is bigger and works on a larger level than just when you and I miss the mark or make mistakes. We've talked about that a bit in other episodes, and at some point down the line, I hope we, I want to do an entire episode on thinking about sin on a cosmic level, but I like to just compare it to you, you think about evils such as poverty or slavery or things like that that really can't be traced back to just one person missing the mark or making a mistake. They're bigger issues going on 
in the world. And so that's kind of big S sin, sin on a cosmic level. And so when you start thinking about sin working in the world on a level that is larger than just you and I, now thinking about sin as well as redemption of creation itself makes sense that it would be found in this section, right? If Paul is thinking about sin, a big capital S sin, then it would make sense that he culminates with the redemption of everything that's impacted by this capital S sin, which is in essence what he does. And a little side note that that I added here to the, our uh, show notes, just kind of as encouragement for you, if that's interesting to you or the book of Romans is interesting to you, or you're wanting to study Romans or something like that, I would highly recommend uh, Beverly Gaventa's book, When in Romans. It's a very short, simple, easy read where she addresses a few keys to understanding Romans. And she has a whole chapter where she talks about sin on a cosmic level and how you see that in Romans and talking about Paul's uh, this outline of Romans, where Paul deals with sin on an individual level and then moves on to sin on a cosmic level. Uh, I'll say you, you'll, pro- you'll probably not agree with all of her takes on Romans, which is probably true of any book that you read, Yeah, uh, but it's a good, helpful book for Romans. And like I said, it's one of the short, there's a chapter in there, short, easy read to better understand how this works. But chapter eight comes within that section of Paul talking about sin on a cosmic level. Uh, And as we get into chapter 8, what's happening right before that, in in chapter 7, Paul talks about the ways that sin has utilized the law to cause sin to abound. So again, that shows sin on a cosmic level. That's sin acting in a way that's bigger than you and I just um, making mistakes. Paul, uh, beginning in chapter 5, Uh, personifies sin. Sin uh, takes on a character and life of its own. Sin is now just not you and I making mistakes, but it does things. It acts, um, and it acts on us as individuals. So I've explained to people, you you might want to think of sin in chapter 5, chapters 5 through 8 of Romans, like we think of Satan, uh, this Mm -hmm. force Mm -hmm. of evil that's doing things in the world. That's the way Paul's using the word sin in chapters 5 through 8. You see that in chapter 7 when he talks about sin actually used the law, used the law of Moses to cause more and more and more and more sin to occur. That's Paul's argument in chapter 7. And so those two things, sin on a cosmic level and in that sin acting and using the law to cause more and more sin to happen— is the context that's going to lead us in to what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 8. Just one comment real quick before we look at chapter 8 specifically. Um, As you were talking about context at the the beginning and all of this, and this passage feeling out of place, as you and I both said, um, it's comforting to know, and we will get to this passage eventually, maybe a couple episodes, in Second Peter 3, when Peter is talking about this, uh, as he's winding that discussion down and winding his letter down, uh, he talks about Paul having spoken of these things as well, but they're hard and difficult to understand, uh, and then says, 
the unstable twist these things to their own destruction. Okay, the stuff that Paul says and the way that he writes is already difficult enough. Uh, even Peter, <laughs> Peter gets this. Okay, if it's difficult for Peter, uh, it's probably going to be difficult for us. We make that infinitely harder when we ignore context and don't try to understand how sections fit into the larger uh, narrative of the book like we've done so far, though we we went from one to the end of eight just now and kind of uh, setting all of that up. More to the book, obviously. Don't need to go there really too much today. Um, but setting all of that up helps us to understand this section. Uh, knowing chapter seven and what's coming right before it, very important for us to uh, for us to understand what's going on here. Uh, if you have a moment, we'd love like if you're not in your car or something like that, we'd love for you to just go read through chapter seven as kind of the yes. build up into this. Please don't do it while you're driving in your car. Right. Don't, don't read chapter seven. If you have an audio Bible, play it and then come back and play this. If it's not too distracting from your drive, just read it eventually as the lead into this. Uh, and with all of that said, uh, th- this will make your understanding of this section and how it fits and all that so much, so much better, so much easier here. Uh, with all of that, uh, Spencer, start walking us through Romans chapter eight. Uh, the section doesn't come up until uh, verse eighteen and following. So, uh, what do we need to know about those first seventeen verses uh, to understand uh, our section today? So the primary emphasis or theme in Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit. That the, the Spirit is the central theme that flows all throughout Romans chapter 8. So remember, we're in a section, Paul's thinking about sin on a cosmic level. He's just talked about how sin has used the law to cause more and more and more and more sin to occur, to cause sin to abound, to use Paul's own words. And so it's that that then moves Paul into chapter 8. And this is how he opens up Romans chapter 8. The first four verses, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul opens up chapter 8 by saying that Jesus has provided the solution to sin that the law could not, right? If, if sin just used the law to cause more sin to happen, well, the, the law is obviously not the solution to this problem of sin in our lives or the problem of sin in the world. And so Paul opens up chapter 8 by saying Jesus is the solution to this problem. Uh, he has solved the problem of sin that the law could not. And we participate in in that salvation that Jesus provides by living in harmony with God's Spirit. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, uh, we have the the Spirit of God living and working inside of us. And so Paul is saying we participate, we benefit from the salvation offered in Jesus by living in accordance with the Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to guide our lives. I, I think of 
Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians is practically a smaller version of Romans in many ways. You see a lot of the same themes themes show up in Galatians Mm -hmm. that Paul deals with more extensively in Romans. There in Galatians, we have the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So uh, one easy way to think about living by the Spirit is living in a way that allows God's Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives instead of living under the control of sin that produces the works of the flesh that Paul talks about there in Galatians. And so Paul's saying that's how we participate in the salvation offered by Jesus. And when we do this, when we live in accordance with the Spirit, we're given the hope for the resurrection of our physical bodies through the Spirit, just like Jesus. That's the culmination of our salvation. So by living in the Spirit, we participate in the salvation found in Jesus, which means that we have the hope of our physical bodies one day being resurrected. Paul says it like this in verse 11 of chapter 8. He says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. A couple things that I just want to briefly mention connect back to last episode. If you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to. Paul talks about the resurrection of our mortal bodies, our physical bodies being resurrected. We talked about that in more detail with what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, in the last episode. He also says that our resurrection will be just like Christ's in the same way that Christ was raised by the Spirit. We too will be raised by the Spirit. Again, we talked about that connection more um, in last episode, but that just kind of, I just wanted to kind of point out the themes that we see carry through Paul's discussion of resurrection and of salvation. And so if we live by the Spirit, we have salvation and ultimately the hope of resurrection. And that resurrection, that glory that we find in Christ comes through suffering with him. And so this is what Paul says in verse 17. And if children, uh, talking about us being children of God as as Christians, he says, if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So the idea there is Paul is simply saying that as Christians, followers of Christ, those who live by the spirit, suffering's going to come. But if we continue to live by the spirit, even though we endure suffering, The end result is that we will be glorified with Christ. And that idea of being glorified is just a shorthand term of Paul referring back to everything that he said. To be glorified with Christ means to be saved in Christ, to find salvation, particularly the culmination of that salvation, our resurrection. To be glorified with Christ is to be raised with Christ, is to be resurrected like Christ, is to live, in essence, in a glorified and redeemed state in heaven heaven in the new creation through our bodies being resurrected, living as the people that God created and designed us to be. That's all wrapped up in that idea of being glorified. And Paul says, some of that means that we're going to have to suffer. To live in the spirit, to follow Christ means you're going to suffer. But if you suffer, you will be glorified. And that's kind of how Paul ends the first section of Romans 8, uh, there in verse 17, 
before he moves into the second little section here of Romans 8, which is where the passage uh, that we really want to discuss is found. Yeah, and the only thing to say before we get into all of that is, uh, while we read a little bit uh, of these other verses, uh, this would be another, again, not while you're driving, but section to read 8, uh, 18 through 30. Uh, we will be uh, specifically looking at various words that are used there uh, and how they are used in other places uh, throughout the book of Romans. Again, that's some of that uh, uh, some of the context stuff that you want to do. A writer is going to use words uh, in certain ways, but two writers may use the same word in different ways, right? So we're going to look at uh, words here in this section in Romans 8, uh, how they show up in other places in Romans to get a better understanding uh, of that, that function, uh, and how it connects with the whole uh, little s, big s, uh, sin levels, personal and, and cosmic, uh, that we said at the beginning was uh, the outline uh, of this book. Uh, Spencer, what word do you want to, or what word or phrase do you want to start with here? So when we start moving into the second section of Romans 8, right, verse 17 said, If we suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with Christ. And so that moves Paul into verse 18. Here of chapter 8, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Hmm. In essence, Paul is saying that suffering now in the name of Christ is worth it because of the reward that we're going to receive for being found in Christ, for living again according to the Spirit. The Spirit's kind of that connecting idea throughout this section. Verse 19, Paul says, for or because uh, our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's about to be revealed to us because the creation, the created order, um, non-human beings, everything else, uh, because the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. And, uh, you know, now that I actually read this, I'm actually going to get out of order of our uh, show notes. Um, so I apologize right. to Jack and to, to any of you <laughs> reading and following our, our show notes. Uh, so the children of God here uh, is referring to Christians who are living in the spirit it's connected back uh, paul says in verse 14 here of romans chapter 8 for all who are led by the spirit of god are children of god so those who live in the spirit followers of christ christians we are children of god and the reason that i say that is that uh so, some people have tried to argue that um in verse 19 here that the creation is talking about human beings uh all human beings uh yeah, the yeah. the problem with that is that the children of god is talking about human beings it's talking about human christians so the creation here can't be talking about human christians later on it's going to say that the creation 
is waiting to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, it's waiting for the same redemption that Christians are. So it can't be talking about non-Christians unless we're universalists and everyone's going to be saved. So creation has to be talking about something other than human beings, which means the only other thing that creation can be talking about is what it seems to obviously be talking about. And that is all non-human life. And so Paul says that the creation is waiting with eager longing. The idea of eager longing is an intensely desired expectation with a high confidence of fulfillment. In essence, it's the idea of Christian hope, right? What is our Christian hope? It's an expectation that we have for what God is going to do that we know is going to happen. When we talk about hope, we always talk about how it's not just wishful thinking that we wish something will happen, but we know one day it's going to, it just hasn't yet. And so Paul's saying that the creation itself has a hope. It has an expectation that it knows. Creation can't really know, but you get the idea. Paul's kind of personifying creation here. But the creation has a hope that it knows is going to happen. And that hope is for the revealing of the children of God. The idea of revealing is to communicate knowledge that was previously hidden to human beings by some kind of divine or supernatural agency. So when we understand the children of God being Christians, what Paul's saying here is that the creation, non-human beings, have this hope for the children of God to be revealed, for Christians to be revealed in the way that we were created and designed to be, uh, right? Paul's been talking about salvation and resurrection. And so he's saying the creation is actually has the same hope that we as Christians do. The creation itself is waiting for us as Christians to be revealed, to be resurrected, to become that which God created and designed us to be. Verse 20, because the reason that creation is waiting for us to be redeemed, for us to be resurrected, is because the creation was subjected to futility. That word futility is something that cannot be used as it was intended or designed to be used. And what's interesting here is now Paul starts to speak of the predicament, the problem that creation has, with the same language that he's used in the first eight and a half chapters to talk about the predicament or the problem that you and I have because of sin, both little s sin and big s sin. So he says that creation was subjected to futility. That is, creation can no longer function in the way that God intended and designed it to, which is in essence... The definition of sin. Because of sin, you and I as human beings, like the creation, are not able to live as God intended or designed us to live. I, I think the best example is in back in chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, 
when Paul's talking about the way that we see sin in our individual lives. In verse 26 and 27, he talks about homosexuality. He talks about men giving up what he calls natural relationships with other men, women, I mean, uh, giving up natural relationships with women, women giving up natural relationships with men for unnatural relationships, men with men, women with women. And the idea of natural there, Paul's hitting on, there's a way that God created and designed human beings to use their sexuality. And because of sin, we as human beings have given up. We have started to live in a way that is contrary to God's intention or designed for the sexual aspect of our lives. And you could go through the rest of Romans and see other places where we see that. Uh, but Paul's saying that creation is has the same problem. Because of sin, it is no longer able to live or in the way that God created and designed it to live and to function. And he says, but this is not of its own will, but of the will who of the one who subjected it in hope. There's the idea of creation's hope. So creation like us, because of sin, is not functioning in the way it was intended or designed by God to. But creation, again, like us as Christians, has a hope. And this hope, verse 21 is that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. The word bondage there is the word for slavery. I hate that it's created translated bondage because slavery is one of the, probably the primary theme Paul uses throughout Romans to talk about our relationship to sin, Yeah, that we are slaves to sin, and what Christ has done is set us free from that slavery. Um, for example, just go uh, and read all of Romans chapter 6. That's Paul's primary theme there is that we were slaves to sin, but when we were baptized into Christ, we were set free from our slavery to sin to become slaves to righteousness. Uh, Paul says in verse 15 here of chapter 8 that we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you've received a spirit of adoption. We've been set free from the from our slavery to sin to be adopted as children of God. And so Paul is saying here that the creation has this hope to be set free from its slavery to decay or its slavery to death. What is the result of sin? Again, this is another thing through Romans. The result of sin is death. We as Christians are slaves to sin, therefore we're slaves to death. What Christ has done for us as Christians is set us free from our slavery to sin and death and give us the hope of life, of resurrection life, of eternal life in the new creation, eternal life in heaven. So again, I think we can see that Paul is saying the same thing is true with creation. Creation has the hope to be set free from its slavery to death. It's slavery to sin, just like us. We're slaves to sin and death. Creation is a slave to sin and death. It's not functioning in the way God intended for it to. But like us as Christians, the creation has hope. It has the hope of being set free from this slavery to sin and to death. And Paul says, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation's hope 
is to be set free from its slavery to sin and death and to receive the glory of the children of God. We've already talked about what our glory as children of God is. It's talking about our salvation. It's talking about eternal life. It's talking about heaven. Specifically, it's talking about resurrection. Because what's resurrection? When we're resurrected, when Christ returns and Christians are resurrected, that's Christ's final victory over sin and death. When we are resurrected, we are fully set free from the powers of sin and death. They no longer control us any longer. Creation waits for that too. Creation, in essence, waits for its own resurrection. It awaits to be freed from its bondage, its slavery to decay, to death, to sin, to a status where it's not functioning like God intended for it to. And again, that connects back to that glory in verse 17, which connects back to us being raised in Christ when we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. Um, Verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. If you remember when we were looking at new creation in the Old Testament, we saw that imagery of labor, of God giving birth to new life, to a new creation, to a new way of living and being. And so, in essence, what Paul is saying here is he's capitalizing on that Old Testament theme and says that the creation has been groaning in labor pains. It's been suffering. Why? It's been subjected to sin. It's enslaved. It's not uh, living. It's not functioning the way God intended it to. It's groaning in labor pains. But what do the pains of child labor produce? The glory of the child. You go through the pain for a little while to get to the glory of the child. And Paul's using that imagery to say, yes, the creation. And he goes on to say, we ourselves as Christians are groaning. We're struggling as we live in this broken world. But it's through that groaning, which I think is probably connected to that idea of suffering. We're suffering in this life. We suffer as Christians. The creation is suffering. But through that suffering is going to eventually give birth to glory is going to give birth to new creation. It's going to give birth to heaven. It's going to give birth to resurrection, both of creation to an extent, as well as us as Christians, where we finally get to live freed from the slavery of sin and death, where we get to fully live in the way that God created and designed us as human beings to live, where the creation is going to be able to function in the way God created and designed it. And so you see creation there is spoken about both now in relation to sin, as Paul talks about us, but it also talks about creation waiting for the same redemption that we are waiting. So the creation itself is wrapped up not only in God's plan of redemption, but it's wrapped up in the ultimate redemption, in resurrection life, in in heaven. The creation itself is taking part in all of that. And so we can debate what that looks like for God to redeem the creation, But I think what we can't debate is that the creation itself is going to be with us in heaven, that it's going to be part of God's plan of redemption, which means that at minimum, 
there is some physicality to heaven, as we've been arguing, because the creation is going to be a part of it, as well as our physical bodies. Paul says our mortal bodies that are going to be resurrected. And so if we want to say that heaven is purely spiritual, I honestly think we just have to, I hope this isn't too harsh, but I think we just have to get a Sharpie and mark out this passage. Because Hmm. it seems obvious that Paul is lumping creation in with humanity in the problem of sin, but as well as in God's scheme of redemption. And again, that this whole idea, we're going to talk about this more in just a second, takes us back to Genesis. And so what Jack and I would argue is that it's new creation, it's new heavens and a new earth. That's what this is going to look like. That's how creation gets its redemption. God redeems everything and we're taken back to Eden. We have new heavens, we have a new earth, a new physical existence in the presence of God where everything, ourselves and creation, are living and functioning like God created it to because we've both been set free from our slavery to sin and death. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely where we're headed, and I hope you can see that uh, in the text as we're going through these various things, piecing these things together. Um, not only just seeing how this part of Romans fits in with earlier parts of Romans, but also how this section in Romans fits in uh, with 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel accounts that we've looked at, uh, and uh, the Old Testament passages in Genesis and Isaiah, uh, and our future stuff uh, that we'll get to here soon. Um, I, I think Spencer did a good job there of connecting these dots of Paul is doing this cycle this time with with the creation at, at this bigger level that he was doing before in the book with us uh, at a personal level. Uh, there may be a question, though, uh, for those listening as far as, okay, so creation wants to be redeemed and it has this hope and, and all of this, uh, you know, enslaved and, and all of this. What was the actual corruption of the creation? And uh, we've got a couple quick thoughts on all of that. Uh Spencer, do you want to go ahead and get into uh, what what exactly is the corruption here of the creation? Yeah, so like you said, that's probably a question that some of you may have. You know, it's like, okay, if creation is enslaved to death, sin, not functioning right, how does that work? How does that happen? What does that mean? And we could spend a lot of time with that, and, and we're not, at least not in this episode, but just to... I kind of mentioned that real quick. Again, it, the idea connects us back with, with Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, creation was subjected to humanity. Genesis 1, 28, God blesses humanity and says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Humanity was given dominion over the creation. We've talked about this in former episodes. That's connected with our ideas, image bearers of God. We're representatives of God on earth, meant to to rule earth as God's image bearers. And so because of that, since all of creation was subjected to us as human beings, when we as human beings fell, that had an impact on creation because it was subjected to us. And so when we fell, that impacted everything. Uh, we see this, for example, Genesis three seventeen and 18. God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. We see that the ground itself is cursed. The, the ground itself is impacted by Adam and Eve's sin. And again, that's connected to because it was subjected to humanity. When we fell, the ground was impacted by it. So you have that level. Sin, again, on a cosmic level, impacts not just human beings, but creation itself. But you also have to add to that, we as human beings were created to be stewards of the creation. Creation was subjected to us for us to steward and care Mm -hmm. for it. And since we have fallen, since we're imperfect, we don't do that. At least we don't do it perfectly. We don't do it well. So creation is negatively impacted by the way we act as human beings. Uh, Just like other human beings are negatively impacted by the way we act as human beings because we're fallen. Um, This is one reason that in the Old Testament, God commands for the ground itself, for the creation to uh, receive a Sabbath, Leviticus 26, verses 34 and 35. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, uh, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that you did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So this is interesting. It's actually given a reason for uh, Israel being taken into captivity, being in their enemy's land. Mm -hmm. It's because they didn't care for their land, the the actual land. They abused the land. And they were supposed to give the land rest periodically. That's in the law. And God's in essence saying, since you didn't give the land its rest, its Sabbaths, uh, I'm going to give the land its Sabbaths by taking you out of the land. So now you can't abuse it or misuse it any longer. And so you have that idea, too, of us as human beings abusing and misusing God's creation, which makes sense why the creation waits for its own redemption, freed yeah. from that curse of Genesis 3, but it also awaits our redemption. It awaits us as human beings to finally be the stewards and carers and protectors of the creation that we were created by God to be, but have done a terrible job of actually executing all the way back to the people of Israel in the Old Testament through to today. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there you go. It goes all the way. Surprise, surprise. Uh, This discussion about new creation goes all the way back to uh, creation discussion in in Genesis. Things continually Uh, go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What an incredible coincidence that is uh, for the the Bible to function in that way. Imagine that. Uh, I would encourage you, if you don't have enough to study already, uh, the word ground is... Uh, and I, I, I cannot remember, so somebody check me on this. Um, I want to say ground and land are same Hebrew word. Um, not entirely sure, but I do know that the word ground is a rather significant word within Genesis. So I know Genesis is rather long, but uh, you can still do a kind of cursory, quick run-through of Genesis and see how often ground is brought up because it's it's a rather important term. Imagine that uh, about the creation and uh, might help to uh, inform some understanding on some of the things that we're talking about here uh, as well. Uh, as always, if you have any questions or thoughts or you find out about 
ground and land for me in Hebrew, that would be great. Uh, you can reach us at uh, our Facebook page, Thinking Theologically. You can get a hold of either of us personally on our fake Facebook pages if you are friends with us. You can probably send us friends requests if we friend requests if we have, I don't know, two mutual friends will probably accept you. Like I'm friends with people I've never met before in my life, so. I'm friends with ton of a ton yeah. of people. I will probably not. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> reject you. Oh, okay. I thought you were gonna say I probably will not accept your friend request. Great. No, chances uh, are I will. Okay. Ch- chances are uh, will will be rather accepting. So uh, uh, unless you're asking for money or something, we have none. Uh, but if you have questions about this, we'd <laughs> love to hear them. Uh, send us messages about those things. You can get a hold of Spencer on Twitter, uh, and you can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. And please go check out thinkingtheologically.org, not only for show notes and other you know connecting episodes that we may reference while we're going through uh, to continue your study, uh, but also check out some of the written content that you miss if you're not if you aren't liking the Facebook page or if you aren't checking the website regularly. So there's some good stuff there. Uh, We didn't cut it because it wasn't good. We cut it because we could have four hour episodes and I don't want to edit it. And you don't want to listen to four hours straight of, I would uh, do it, but uh, (laughs) me and Spencer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He would. Jack's told me that's a bad idea. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, we hope that you will, and will join us for our next episode. I believe we're finishing up the, at least the big sections of Paul, who knows if there is maybe something else that we'll decide in between there, but uh, we should be finishing up Paul and then moving into some other stuff uh, after that. So uh, looking forward to that study. Hope that you are as well. We'll see you next time.